the number one question we always get is, well, how secure is it? And I go, look, you know, nothing's guaranteed, like you said, David, but we uh, haven't missed a monthly distribution to investors in over a decade. So that's always a nice statistic. And then uh, during COVID, we didn't miss any, you know, we are uh, very consistent and very... Today I'm honored to have with me Nick D'Angelo. Nick is the uh, uh, founder of Saint Investment and SaintInvestment.com. He's a lifelong entrepreneur. He's built and sold multiple companies, and we're going to dive into a little bit of that today. He's a professional investor, speaker, fund manager, and he has over $200 million in real estate assets under management. So Nick knows a thing or two about breaking golden handcuffs. Nick, welcome to the show. David, thanks for having me. Really excited to talk to you today. Likewise. So there's so much to talk about from a fund manager and an entrepreneur. And before we started recording, I was asking you a little bit about Golden Handcuffs and you were telling me a really compelling uh, decision in your business life where you were offered handcuffs and they were golden in nature. And like a lot of our listeners, we have real successes and then somebody wants to tie us to that success forever. I'd love to hear about your story in that. Yeah, so it was a really interesting time, right? So uh, we've done a lot of exciting things with Saint, but there was a period of time early on where we were primarily on the acquisition side. So we identified properties. It was in the wake of the Great Recession. So there were deals everywhere. There were deals all over the market, but money wasn't in the market, right? So Sounds was- kind of like today in some ways. <laughs> I mean, I'm seeing a lot of similarities, maybe some different assets along the way, maybe some slightly different strategies, but in a lot of ways similar, right? And for better and worse. And so I connected with some really, uh, really high net worth and really amazing people along the way that uh, were cowboys and smart and knew the advantage of going into the market. So we did just that. We bought some really advantageous properties went headfirst into a lot of different real estate deals that had some degree of distress. And from there, we woke up with all these properties that were had bur- that were purchased at amazing prices, but now we had to figure out how to manage all these. So I built out an asset management team along the way, but that was under the same banner. That was under a separate banner. And so we had this conversation where I had a handful of companies. They were doing very well. They were very successful. Uh, we ended up selling those later, but at this point they were full steam ahead doing great. We built out the real estate side that was doing great. It was asset managing these guys, you know, uh, properties that we had purchased. And I was presented an offer that was literally the golden handcuffs deal. Everybody was up front. They're very wealthy. They're also very direct, these guys. And I, (laughs) yeah, it's not about, oh, nice shoes. Yeah. How are we going to make more money today? And in, that was a beautiful part of the relationship is we're all trying to work together, um, but they were clear, hey, this is not a freelance type discussion. This is a discussion where you will be owned by the team. You'll be part of a team. You'll make double the income in one day. You sign right on this dotted line, you'll make double the income. You'll have a piece of the deals that's bigger than what you have now. We'll almost double your equity percent, double your involvement. I mean, these are things that I would have to be basically an idiot to not sign, right? But I just wasn't wired for it. And the more I drilled down and the more I went into it and the more I saw, hey, I have these other companies, they have these opportunities, I have these other assets, 
and just myself, I just knew that if I was left in the open, I could push bigger than the opportunity in front of me, even though overnight I would have made double and doubled my net worth. So um, it was a really difficult decision. It was very stressful, but also it was this huge moment of personal clarity of having to dive 20 layers deep in myself and just say, who am I? Like, what do I need? What, what value can I really bring to a company or to myself or to my own flexibility or future family, et cetera? So it was a difficult moment, but it oh, was man. literally an old handcuffed discussion, literally. Yeah, when you're talking about this, and I assume that you were doing flips and you were buying single family and multifamily flips at some sort of scale, right? So we were actually taking the model of that acquisition model of a single family home or a single family, you know, or those opportunities where people were fixing and flipping. And we were just doing that. We were adding zeros and doing that with commercial. Right. And so, so we were doing the same acquisition model. We just applied that to bigger assets because these guys had too much money. They're like, I don't care about a $500,000 house. I need to add a zero, you know? So yeah. If you, if you have a billion dollars, a million dollar moment does not care. It's that the discussion. I've got a friend who's a billionaire and we we're talking about making some money and he's like, that's not big enough. And, and those are the moments, right? And what a blessing of perspective to, to absorb from those people, but also um, their discussions are different and it's, it's a lot to learn. It is. And it can be overwhelming. So I want to go back though, because I've had the same moment, but I didn't know it at the time. And I think so many people that listen to this podcast have had that moment. It's called a job offer. It's, yes. Yep. They're not as overt about the contract. Yep. But I remember signing non-compete non disclosures back in the 90s. And basically the non-compete said, you cannot work for any other enterprise. Yeah, exactly. And that would include side hustles. And you had to get dispensation from your employer to be able to own a company no matter what the company did. And exactly. so most of us don't realize we already have that set of handcuffs. Absolutely. And I always say to everybody, read your docs before you sign an employment contract. Read your docs before you sign an offer for employment. And if they give you, I, I love it when you get the offer for employment, you don't know that there's an NDA coming and you also don't know that there is a uh, non-compete coming. You start the job, day one, HR sits down and hands you a packet. And there's your company handbook. There's, oh yeah, just skim it, sign it. It's just boilerplate. Yep. And then there, there they go. Oh, here's your disclosures. So, such a crucial thing. So how did you, what was the process you went through when you were offered this turnkey career or turnkey gift, right? Or I don't know what to call it, right? I mean, it, most people would have looked at it. One, most people could and should look at it like I'm an idiot for nothing, right? At that moment, if you zoomed in on my life and on that moment, it was a dumb move to not take it. But if you zoomed out at what I knew about myself and what I knew I could do and what my other companies were doing and, and the opportunities... It was not the right move to lock into something that was so confining. Um, so to answer your question, the decision on my on my side was it was there were some numbers that I ran. I said if I go here, it, it looks like this, it looks like that. 
Um, there was some just personal side. It's really hard. You know, most of your listeners, if they're if they're dealing with a corporate environment, and they're and there's so much so much so many complications to that between culture and time and energy suck and um, you know all the logistics of their time and, and you know and where they're putting their focus and energy. That's that was my concern on this is that uh, was navigating that decision. And the hardest part was, and again, I have a great relationship with these people today. So we didn't, the bridge was not like blown up and everybody hates each other. And we all go to court. It was a lot of discussions and uh, drawing some lines respectfully. And then also saying, uh, giving reassurance that I'm here and we're still partnered on those things and we still can work through things together but not in an owned capacity. It would have to be, we all sit down at a table together. And so that slight shift cost me a lot of money in the moment, a lot of equity in the moment. But um, longer term, I think I probably did more deals and made more money with these individuals by evening the uh, playing field a little bit more than um, locking in at that exact moment. Yeah, there's there's power in and boundaries. Because you talked about lines, and that line is a boundary-setting position. Yes. And, and I, people people don't think about it like that, but that's what it is. It says, no, Mr. Investor, no, Mr. Partner, you can't own me. We can work together, but there's not going to be a 100% commitment to just uh, you. Yeah, it was it was exactly that. And it was it was just a... Um, and part of it was there was some gamesmanship on my end where I was just saying, look, we've had a really good relationship. Let's not make it what it isn't, right? Let's keep <laughs> making money. We're doing pretty good. So like, let's keep money now. Let's keep making money now. We're making money. And uh, let's not try and change the nature of this and, and throw uh, some some wrenches in there. But to me, true, true. So that's how I framed it with these people that I deeply cared about. And we made a lot of money and and they were very close to my life. But most importantly to me, it was knowing myself, being an entrepreneur with always a side hustle, always with the business, paying my way through, you know, you know, all of my early 20s, my college, all those things, always having a job that I was uh, self-employed. So I just bet on myself. If, if you want me to narrow it down, that's what I, you know, felt was most uh, the best step forward. And that is a recurring theme time and time again between self-made millionaires, self-made billionaires, entrepreneurs. The bet is always on your own back. It's been documented many times over, right? We can cite research study after research study. I keep thinking about the millionaire next door written, you know, 40 Great. years ago now. And it tells you that the number one thing an, a, a, an entrepreneur does is invest in themselves. No doubt I about it. that. Yeah. So, uh, Tell me, from that seminal decision, what happened in your career as a entrepreneur and wealth creator to let you know that you did the right thing? Yeah, it was. Um, so that was the real estate side, and simultaneously, we were, we were, you know, I had a few other companies. We were ramping up and hiring, and uh, it was really, I felt fractured. I will say that there's a difficult position where you're living two lives and you have two careers. And so many of your listeners are probably going through pieces of that, the side hustle in the main or Is it? transition looks like that was extremely difficult. I'd love to say that I had all this balance and I was like this, this, you know, Nirvana, you know, reaching individual. 
Instead, what I'll tell you is I slept three hours a night and banged my head against the wall with a lot of bad decisions trying to make it all work. But um, what I found out was a few things. And the first was that I did really love real estate and I loved what I did and how I did it. I just didn't like the idea and I wouldn't have thrived in an environment where I was being owned, right? So that was one. I didn't like the other businesses. So what I did was understood that and just said, how much am I making in each category, right? And how much time am I putting towards each category? So it was just a time versus return analysis on it's my a straight end. mathematical analysis, right? Once you get the data points, it's really clar clarifying, isn't it? Exactly. And I, I realized I had a natural ability at real estate and investing. And um, the other side was not as interesting for these other businesses. So what we did was I pulled my staff, I, my top manager brought them in a room and just said, this is what an exit looks like in three years. Do we want to crush, you know, kill ourselves for the next three years to build these? Or do we want to exit now for a lower multiple? Obviously, I shared you know, the successes with them. We were a very uh, horizontal organization in that regard. So we, we voted to sell those. And I decided to take my, you know, take my ducats that I made from that and go full-time into real estate. Um, and that has been all the difference for us is now with our real estate products that we offer, with the ways that we invest, we literally target people in that same position. It's like people that have, uh, you know, a ramping up business where they say, look, the nut, because our business was very lumpy. We were making a ton of money one month, other months, they were really rough months. So what we did was create a vehicle on the investment side that I wish I had at that period of time, which just pays out a set amount every month, but you can get your money back flexibly in 90 days or less when you need it. So that's what I literally designed investments around because I was dealing with the businesses on the other side. And so now that's what we do full time. And it's, it just, there's nothing that feels more aligned with my own background than investing that way. So that's, it was really stepping into something that was more um, wholesome and true to what my background was than something that I didn't love, that wasn't my real, it didn't make my heart pitter patter and nobody got it. I didn't get up excited for that. I got excited for the investment side and working with cool people that were in similar positions that I was. Yeah, that sounds very familiar to me. I got excited from the commission checks when I was in corporate America. I, I ran a division of Viacom in, in some way, shape, or form as a sales executive. I loved the deal. But man, did I hate the minutia. Man, did I hate all the politic. I love the people, you know. Uh, uh, but yeah, it's true. If you're not completely aligned in what you're doing and what you're serving and the problem you're solving, I think one of the things that I've come to learn is that if you don't solve a problem you care about, it doesn't matter. That's why I don't own a commercial cleaning company. It's an easy company to start. Sure. It's not hard to run one. They're fairly profitable. I just don't love the idea of having somebody come in and clean offices from 10 p.m. to 6 a.m. every day. Sure. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a problem I care about. And I think that's that's the difference is what problem do we care about and how do we solve it? Absolutely. I love that. So if if you had a lumpy business cash flow and you're not telling me what category, what business, so it's killing me, but oh, I'm not going to ask. No, I'll, I'll share. So we were in a few different industries uh, because there are multiple businesses, but uh, they ranged from uh, cannabis being on one side. We were part uh -huh. of licensing. We were doing rollouts in multiple states with, um, we were actually working, a lot of that was on the real estate side, working with zoning that was changing. So we were working directly- By the with, hour. Uh, 
my gosh. So I, I could tell you war stories of dealing with. Well, I live in Colorado, so I was one of the <laughs> early states, and I was in real estate during part of that time. So I fully understand the challenges. I've got a good friend who owns a cannabis business in town and has like seven or nine different locations in three or four different states. I will pray for your friend. Okay, yes. that's what I'll say. Yeah, I'll, I'll say a lot of prayers, but uh, that's what we are doing. We're in four states. We we had a huge, um, uh, fully licensed legal business that covered everything from retail all the way to the licensing process, all the way to the real estate. We had other sides that were in the finance space. You know, we had uh, we worked with a lot of different ATM companies on placement contracts. A lot of too many moving pieces. And I wasn't passionate about any of it. I just saw opportunities and thought I'd follow, like follow the money, right? Whereas you're chasing the green, exactly. literally. <laughs> and yeah, for a big part. And so, but I didn't. That wasn't my purpose. That wasn't my calling. Uh, it was I was chasing the money instead of chasing the purpose. And what I what I on my side felt a lot more aligned was with the investors, p- helping people do what I wish I could have done. I like the people that we that invest with us today. I love those conversations. I try to take as many of those calls as I can. But um, that was the background was hundred hour weeks of nonstop, you know, three hours of sleep. I had a bunch of kids now. I could have never done that in the back in the day. Never could have done run a family and you know seen friends. I had no life. I just worked on the business. Yeah, I understand. I lived on a plane doing that with. Uh... Yeah. 22 states I was running. So yeah, wow. it was cha- it was challenging, right? And I had young kids. Oh, I remember one time I sat in a rocking chair coming back from the, the day trip or overnight trip at Salt Lake City and it was 10.30 and my wife said, here's the baby. And I was feeding them and I'm in the rocking chair and I'm like, is this all there is? I will never forget that conversation I had with myself and we've all been there as parents. And there, you chase the money, the money empties. And I can't yeah. say that enough. And so breaking the golden handcuffs is not about money. It's about fighting joy. Absolutely. Sure. But we're, we're, we're getting way too deep. Let's talk a little bit about, say, uh, I'm sorry, say, saying investments. Tell yeah. me what, what's your categories that you guys are investing in? I don't, I, I, I don't know a whole bunch about it. I know that I've watched you and followed you. I was excited when you signed up to talk with us because I think that you've got a really unique niche in that you're working with small business owners to solve a problem. And there are a lot of us out there. So tell me a little bit more about your investment models and thesis and and what you do. (laughs) Yeah. So it's, it's all, it all goes back to basically what we talked about is that exact snapshot of a moment in time where I was, you know, working hundred hour weeks, my health was failing. I had a very big health scare. My relationship with a person I thought I was going to marry was basically on the rocks and ended up getting the ultimatum of it's me or the company, right? I said, sorry, my goals and dreams will always take precedent. I, I don't know what else to say. Uh, I had really low relationships with family and friends. Uh, basically, all I did was work. Like I said, it was just so that was not what I am I felt put on this planet to do. So um, I really was saved in a big way by my investments and how we structured things. I knew that I needed consistency and flexibility, but I wanted to invest in real estate. For me, the stock market wasn't a good outlet. I didn't trust it in many ways. I wasn't in the room when they were making big decisions. All that wasn't a good fit, right? So yeah, you're never in the room. No, you're if, never. I mean, that's the best thing that made, uh, oh, that Lin-Manuel, I can't say the guy's name from Hamilton, best song. You got to be in the room and you're never in the room. Yeah. 
And so I, uh, as, as I exited and, and made some money on the sale of those businesses, um, I reevaluated my life and I just said, how can I help the people I want to help with and work with the people I want to work with and keep doing what I like the best. And it kept coming back to the real estate assets that, uh, that we could invest in and help those people. So we built a whole model around that. And we already had a lot of those assets, but we leaned into that. So we buy real estate assets in two categories now. One is the hard assets, you know, four walls and a roof, commercial buildings that are extremely boring and sexy. And I say that because they're, they're so boring that that's what makes them sexy to me is I only want things that are ridiculously consistent performers. Are you so talking it, about things like industrial storage warehouses? Exactly. Or so. are you Go talking ahead. about something like a surgical center for a surgeon? So we buy primarily two categories on real estate. And that is industrial warehouses, where okay. you know, I would consider us a premier investor in the industrial real estate space, extremely plugged in. Is and then it? the other is we partner with a lot of really good operators on multifamily. So large scale, very high end, boringly, consistently sexy in that category. You're doing class A core multifamily? Very, like as if there's, I've never seen, yeah, what we look at as the most, the most consistent for everything. So core markets, we're looking at class A primarily and things with long, you know, long track records and what we believe to be a long future track record. The second half of what we do is we invest in mortgages. So we buy mortgage positions, we buy mortgages that are paying consistently, and that allows us to give our investors the flexibility. And again, very low LTVs, very conservative really, really the most conservative type flexible products that we can find in that category. So between those two, we created what's called the real estate. It's more rare, but it's an income fund. And what that does is it pays a set return every single year paid out on a monthly basis. And after it's only a one year commitment. And then after that, people can get their money back in 90 days. So with that model, the classic real estate model is you put your money in to a, you know, an investment or a fund for five to 10 years. But the problem is you're locked into a fund for five to 10 years, right? So in, an, in a market like we're dealing with today, that's volatile. A Fed doesn't know what's going on. We have inflation concerns that, you know, my, my bet is that persists for a longer period of time. You can't trust a savings account because that's less than inflation, even if it's at 4%. You're inherently losing money by the hour. Literally. And you it's like it's hard for me to buy into that. You're right? losing buying power. You're not necessarily losing cash per se. And it's an it's an academic thought process, but the right. reality is that your your dollar is less powerful today than it was yesterday under that scenario. It, and you know it. That's the hard part. Is you like, feel it when you're buying turkey at the grocery store. It's not conceptual. It's the Fed says that they're, you know, at five percent inflation. Or whatever, but even the estimates are a lot higher than that by many groups. So um, it's really hard for me to place my money at a four percent if I know inflation's at five, maybe six, seven. You know, uh, so we created a product that was very flexible for the crazy times we're in. That pays eight percent. You get your money back in ninety days or less after the lockup period. So that's what we've been focusing on because most real estate products need a five to ten year time horizon to pay their returns. Because we invest the way we do, we don't need that long time horizon so we can give our investors the flexibility. 
So let's say you're a small business or you're, you know, you're an entrepreneur or a solopreneur in that position where you have maybe lumpy cash flow, et cetera, you can buy streams of income to literally offset the lumpiness, which is what I would look at. So there's that word that the SEC says we never use, which is guaranteed. Sure. Right? Not guaranteed. Just check it. Yes. Definitely not guaranteed. <laughs> but, um, you know, really safe and really secure, I'd say, is, is uh, always what we're, what we're aiming. The thesis here is that it's going to be basically an annuity style investment without the annuity reduction in returns. Exactly right. And so, you know, the number one question we always get is, well, how secure is it? And I go, look. You know, nothing's guaranteed, like you said, David, but we uh, haven't missed a monthly distribution to investors in over a decade. So that's always a nice statistic. And then uh, during COVID, we didn't miss any, you know, we are uh, very consistent and very on track. Well, that's awesome. So I kind of understand the idea behind it. I kind of understand what you're talking about from a, hey, we're going to do this as a, as a, uh, it's not a capital appreciation play per se, as much as it is a cash stream investment structure, which is atypical because most real estate investment stuff is capital appreciation. I do a lot more capital appreciation than cash stream, sure. but I totally respect it. And there's a time and place for all of it, right? For sure. Absolutely. And capital preservation is a number one motivator for uh, highly compensated employees. You, you know, I've talked to many investors who say, I don't want to take a risk to lose what I've got. Absolutely. And we, uh, we consider, you know, so if you, if you just pick a financial advisor out of the, out of the Yelp or out of, you know, a random group, Tom Jones, Tom Jones, right. Tom Jones advisor, you call Tom up and you say, Tom, what should I do? And I'll tell you, well, 60% stocks and 40% bonds or something similar. The reason is stocks offer the appreciation and bonds offer the consistency, right? So our goal is always to offer a similar structure without the stock market, without equities, without government paper, right? We're trying to do real estate with the similar ideas. So we do do syndications on at, at times. It's just not the environment for that, in my opinion, right now. But we're it's challenging for sure. It's very, you know, it's for, for the asset classes that we primarily do, uh, we're waiting to see how the market shakes out, right? Yeah, if you're buying class A core multifamily, you're in negative leverage right now. And, and we have no interest in negative leverage at this so, but if we can offer something unique that would be semi-equivalent to a bond, let's say, but still backed by real estate and still beats inflation and it's very, very flexible for investors, that's unique. I don't see that in the marketplace. And, you know, when we guys say like, oh, well, Blackstone offers an income fund, I go, yeah, they pay 4%, right? So if you want, again, if you want to lose And they money- just defaulted on their payments, did they not on their dividends? I think they stopped dividends, if I remember correctly. It was like, what, 30 days ago? Is that right? It's, you know what, and you keep seeing that in the market, right? right? So, and you're gonna. Yep, you're right. So you, you talked about buying uh, paper, buying mortgages. Are you buying off of Fannie and Freddie's resale market or are you buying from uh, Seller Carry or what's their sourcing for that? That's something we haven't talked about much yet, but it's a tremendously lucrative field. Guys, if you can be the bank, you always want to be the bank. Bank always wins. Bank always wins. Vegas always wins. The house always wins. If you can be the bank. So what? what's the secret sauce you got there, Nick? So I'll, I'll give you the good news and the bad news, okay? So right. the mortgage note industry, um, you know, I again, I made my bows in the wake of 2008 in acquisitions. So I was buying a lot of foreclosures. I eventually at different points 
was walking in with, you know, eight, 10, $12 million in cashier's checks to the courthouse steps buying properties. That was my, mm-hmm. so I was very familiar with the note business, but it was on the other side of the spectrum. It was guys that held all these right. mortgages that weren't paying. So I knew what that non-performing side of the business was. I didn't understand the real depth of the performing side of the mortgage industry. Before you jump in, let me ask you a question on this because I sure. was in the ad business in 08. Okay. And it was a big deal because it had a tremendous ripple effect. But what percentage of the typical mortgage portfolio defaults? Oh, man. Um, I would tell you that it depends on which tier you're leaning into. So in 2008, with that just, you know, huge swap of subprime mortgages, there were countries, excuse me, there were companies that made their bones in the subprime market. They were right. shrinking these freaking- we can, we, can, we can say it's uh, the Seattle company, the L, the, I can, I, uh, Wells Fargo bought up one of them, WAMU, Washington Mutual was a big, big one. Then there's one out of LA that was uh, not Oxnard, not Cup. It was countrywide. Countrywide. That's what yeah. I was thinking of. Yeah. So um, there's there's guys that made their bones doing that, right? Mm-hmm. And so what percentage? I'd say 100% if your company can't sustain and you go under and you got to sell everything to a different bank just to right. pay bills, right? But for the listeners, a typical default rate on a mortgage is what? 3 4%? It's about 3%. Where, where yeah. you want to peg is about 3 4% up if you're looking at different... Uh, if you have a mixed, if you have a mixed market, it's got to you got to forecast somewhere three to four. And the 08s was you were having thirty percent defaults because the they were arms and the arms all expired, so they could def, they were defaulting when the arms changed. Exactly that. Yeah, I mean that was a huge factor, right? It's that was factors. the core. That was one of the core elements, right? It was such a huge debt ball, right? Mm-hmm. So today, what's good is, that's different than 08. I'll say this is that in 08, the big bank. We're the ones at risk. The too big to fail discussion, right? Now mm-hmm. it's some of the small banks because they're trying to find a niche. Like you look at Silicon Valley, they had a niche with all kinds of creative products that were very liquid, right? So when they when there's liquidity crunch, they didn't survive. Among other things, there's a lot that's very and they were they were very much in a niche of dependent upon influxes of capital, big supporting time. negative burn rate businesses. Sure. So, you know, where we where we fit into the mortgage portfolio, the mortgage investing pool today is that we have we go after the most stable, most secure that make the most sense. So at the high end, well, you'll see between like the Bank of Americas or US banks and all that, you'll see a lot of mortgages bounce back and forth for par, right? Which is the exact amount that was borrowed on that. So mm-hmm. because we had a decade, 15 years of these super low interest rates, it's a weird market on how that all shakes out. But really where we play in is in the space where things were off track in a period of time, but now they're re-performing is what we work with quite a bit. So a lot of the discussion is working with borrowers that have nothing wrong with them. They have good credit. There's no reason why they can't pay, stable job, et cetera. And you call them and you say, you're not paying. Why aren't you paying? Right? And the, we hate foreclosures. Again, I've made my bones dealing with that business. I don't like being on the other end of that as the bank. So instead, it's getting on the phone with the borrower and say, what's going on? Why aren't you making your payment? Oh, I can afford 500, but I can't afford 800. Right? Okay, we're going to extend your loan by a period of time and we're going to lower your payments. How does that sound? Can you can you agree to that? 
oh, that's great. Now I could budget that, right? My daughter's And living. that's different because a corporation like a WAMU, since they're defunct, we can talk about that without any liability risks. Sure. It's like a WAMU couldn't do that because their system was too rigid to work with the buyer to create instead of a 30-year note, a 40-year note. Exactly right. Because they have boxes that things have to fit into very neatly. So where they would have to foreclose on that situation, we can get a little bit more involved with our partners and our asset managers and uh, contact people and just say, why aren't you paying? Are you a jerk and you just don't think you should pay your mortgage? Or more likely, it's there's a reason and let's see if we can work together. My experience is most folks want to pay their obligations. Yes, me too. It's very few that really are the political football bad apple that people bounce around sure. from network to network saying, if we do this, they're bad people. They're bad people. It's really just circumstances in life. And, you know, having to evict people is never pleasant. Having oh. to foreclose is never pleasant. You're taking some, making, you can possibly make somebody homeless. And they don't want that. They want to pay their bills and unless they're really messed up. And that's a small percentage. I agree. That's what we've seen. And so what's interesting is exactly what you said is why the mortgage industry is very fractured is because at the high levels, let's take, let's, let's just say a big bank, right? Let's say a top five bank. People, the average American won't have access to buy the notes or the loans that those banks have for sale because there's something called reputational risk, right? Uh-huh. So uh-huh. let's say they sell a pool of loans to another person who is just that buyer is just a really bad person who wants to take advantage and foreclose on all these people and just get these houses at discounts, which is the opposite of our model. We do not like the foreclosure model at all. We don't want to foreclose on anybody. And frankly, our foreclosure rates are ridiculously low. But let's say somebody did want to take advantage of that. That actually looks bad on the big bank that sold them the loan. Right. right? So the buyers of those loans and the relationship that they have with those big banks is extremely important. Because the big bank has to trust the buyer to be a really good holder of those loans and to treat the borrowers respectfully, even though that bank technically does not own that loan any further. So, and it can come back on the bank with charter renewal issues. I mean, shoot. you can get it pulled in front of the banking committee and then no one's happy. The, the, the comptrollers. The you know regulators, the government, the politics, nobody's happy with the bank foreclosing on a bunch of people and pushing people over, right? So that's where that's where we play in the in the mortgage space is buying mortgages, working directly with the borrowers and getting them back on track so that their credit's good, their payments are good. Really everybody wins if you structure it right. Right. People sleep at night. Everybody sleeps better at night, right? You feel like you actually help somebody. Like I, I yeah. tell you know, and that's the thing that people don't understand is that when you're in real estate, the job is not to punish somebody. The job is to help people provide housing and provide housing that's safe and valuable and functioning and, and or it's to provide storage or industrial space sure. or surgical office buildings. It's, it's not to be a king. And, and I think that to... landlord verbiage is really over abused. And it's, uh, if you, if you take the ego route in a term like that, you're going to lose. I'm proud to say that in 2020, and, which is a brutal year for everybody. It was brutal for our tenants. It was brutal for us. It was brutal for our banking relationships. Again, we didn't miss any payments to our investors because those are our top tier. The first people to get paid. 
I'm actually proud to say we set our leasing record in 2020 during the pandemic because every tenant that contacted us with a problem, we said, yes, we're going to help you. Yes, we want you to stay. Just sign this lease extension. So if you're here for, you know, if you only have a year left and you need help today, let's get you a five-year renewal so that you can bridge the next three to six to nine months or whatever. We'll give you a discount, give you free rent, whatever we need to do. But in exchange, you give us a lease extension. Were you really doing five-year leases? For commercial, yeah. That's that's, Okay, commercial. Yeah, not resi. Right, Correct. got it. I wouldn't do it for residential. No, I would. Yeah, that's why I was like, holy cow. <laughs> we love our tenants, but that's complicated for everybody. Yeah, right. Okay, now I'll put my eyes back in my head. <laughs> no, for res or commercial? For commercial. For commercial, yeah. Makes perfect sense. So I always, we've had a great conversation. I couldn't talk to you for a long time, but I know my listeners will get bored and they'll want to check out. <laughs> Tell funny. me, what's the best piece of advice you wish you had 10 years ago that you know today? I love that question. Um, there's a lot of layers to it. I would tell you, know yourself. I would tell me to know myself. And they take action on it, right? And take action on it because, you know, we had that conversation about the golden handcuff uh, situation I had. Uh, That was primarily for a role of asset management. And that's not actually my biggest strength. And I wouldn't have been fulfilled. And that means I wouldn't have even been able to get my partners the best part of it, right? What I really needed to be doing was focusing on growth and focusing on pushing the ball forward, which is my personal strength. And I've actually made them more money because of that. I made myself more money, but that was an internal, me having me discussions and understanding that. So knowing myself, I would tell people to know themselves inside and out of what they, what makes them tick and the biggest value they can have. Yeah, there's so many ways to go with that too. I love that. That's a great thought process. The converse of that is what's the worst piece of advice you followed in your career? Oh man. So here's one, here's one that I've, I've learned the lesson too many times. I, I don't want to uh, tell you how many times I've gotten punched in the face by this, but that the best pricing equals the best deal. I, I don't <laughs> tell something's priced well does not mean it's the best opportunity or the best thing available or the best deal, whatever that is. Uh, instead, what I've learned is that Often the best pricing means something's incomplete. It's like an incomplete package. So you hire an employee that doesn't actually have all the tools that you actually really need, mm-hmm. or there's an asset with problems that go beyond what you're looking to put into it. Or in uh, most importantly is the time that goes invested into that, that you can't get back. So um, I would much rather... Pay, I think Warren Buffett calls it a fair price for a fair asset or something, you know, something along those lines. Um, I would, you know, right now we're looking for solutions that are built in. So when we hire and we bring on new people to the team, we're looking for a culture fit, but we're looking for something that is somebody that is the full package. We want them to be a perfect fit and to step into the role and do it. We're not looking to pay somebody the least. I'm like, I'm happy to overpay you if you over deliver and we're both playing that game of how we can give more. So it's it's that price does not infer value. Love that. Price does not infer value. Yeah. And I, you know, we talk about quotes and things that move you and the axiomas of the day, and you just gave us two big ones. Price doesn't infer value and know thyself. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's probably timeless. I mean, I'm probably not, you know. No, but talk- it's self, from experience. And what I've experienced, what I've come to learn in my life is that the axioms are there because somebody has experienced it prior to me. And if I just shut up and listen, 
I might learn something. Yep. It's exactly. Yeah. So if the people have liked what they've heard from you, Nick, and they want to learn more, how do they track you down? How do they follow you? What's the interaction way for Nick? Yeah, absolutely. So our biggest focus is on the fund and also on we are constantly staying up to date on the minute by minute economic things going on in the market right now, which is crazy for all of us. So I would say our our resources section on our website has up to like constant, constant new webinars, new videos, new podcasts, new blogs that we compile for our audience just to keep them up to date on what's going on in the investment world and the economic world. So saintinvestment.com slash resources has all of those. We're doing great interactive webinars with Q&A, et cetera. So I think we can get a lot of value to, uh, to an audience that way. Great. We'll put that on the show notes for everybody as well. And thank you so much, Nick, for coming on. Yeah, David, I had a great discussion with you. It's always good to connect and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Likewise, you've been listening to another episode of Break Your Golden Handcuffs. Thank you.